Salam, guys. I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank, a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim Podcast. This is Ibrahim Khan your host. And with me, we have an esteemed guest, Hassan Dahir from the SME financing startup, Gordos. Hassan, welcome. My pleasure, Ibrahim. Yeah, it's an honor to be on the podcast today. It's lovely to have you, Hassan. And for those of you who don't know who Hassan is, he has been running Gordos for a good over a year now, or thinking about the idea for probably a number of years. And yep. it's actually quite rare that people are tenacious enough to kind of stick through all the hurdles to actually get to a point where they launch. So credit to you, Hassan, for doing that. Thanks, bro. As you guys know, the startup journey is one full of obstacles. And definitely being tenacious is a really important characteristic that anyone who wants to build a startup must consider. I mean, it's not going to be an easy ride. If it was, then anyone would be able to do it. Yeah, for sure. So Hassan, I was thinking today, what we'll do is we'll start off discussing a question that I had in my mind, which is, what are the things, if any, that are holding back the growth of Islamic finance in the UK? And then we'll get into your story as well, and how that perhaps even connects up with maybe this question. Love to hear your thoughts on this question. Sure. I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, Abraham. So it's a very good question. On one end, I would say if you just look at the regulatory landscape, I mean, if we just talk about what we did at Cardus, we spent an unusually large amount of time on the regulatory side. What do I mean by regulatory side? Let's take an agreement, for example, a Wakala agreement or anything like that. I would say if you look at the FCA regulations, the FCA perceives the way an Islamic bank would use it differently to the way a non-bank would use it or a fintech platform would use it. So maneuvering that and making sure that the contracts are Sharia compliant and where they fit in with regards to FCA regulations is really important because depending on the license you want to use, whether it's in wealth management, whether it's in crowdfunding similar to what we're in, whether it's in any other area or space, I would say that the contracts or the use of the contracts is restricted to the FCA permissions and maneuvering that takes an unusually large amount of time. So we had to spend a lot of time making sure that everything is in order. And alhamdulillah, I mean, we got there 
eventually, but we weren't expecting to spend that much time doing that at the very beginning. So that's on one end. That's if, if you want a technical observation that anyone who wants to set up a Shura compliant fintech platform would have to consider making sure that everything is in order contractually and regulations wise. Otherwise, I would say the one thing that is really important as well, again, we're talking about the UK predominantly. A really important point over here is making sure that a platform is not only Sharia compliant when it comes to the contracts, but the platform or the business is also positioning itself to fulfill a specific benefit. By benefit, I mean impact. So impact is really important over here. So I think as far as my interpretation is concerned, at least, that it's not only about making sure that the contracts are Sharia compliant and the structures are Sharia compliant, but also we should definitely focus on having an impact, whether it's a social impact, whether it's an environmental impact. I mean, there's got to be more to this than just trying to replicate the economic effects of a conventional contract or conventional business whilst making it Sharia compliant. So that's definitely embedded in what we're trying to do. And inshallah, as we move forward, we plan to bring that out more and more in the services we provide. But we find it very pivotal and really important that all Sharia compliant businesses and all Sharia compliant fintech platforms in particular have to be well aligned with the needs of their users and should be impactful. Makes a lot of sense. I hear you on the regulatory side of things because it can be a very painful process yeah. because you're a startup and I know that you guys like to move as quickly as you possibly can, yeah. whereas neither the FCA nor the appointed rep that you're working with. And for people who don't know who an appointed rep is, you can be either directly FC authorized or you can come under the umbrella of another entity that has direct FC authorization and they'll kind of take you under their wing. An appointed rep doesn't necessarily move as quickly as you might want them to or fully understand even what you're up to. So my sympathies are there for you. What do you think about from non kind of technical perspective, like just from a market perspective, perhaps over the next year or so in the COVID era and all this sort of thing, where do you think are going to be the kind of big hurdles that we're going to face as an Islamic finance community? Yeah, so that's a really good point as well. I mean, if we break it down, Abraham, I would say, again, it comes down to having an impact. If you look at the post-COVID-19 or as we are currently in the current COVID-19 landscape, I would say that people are much more aware with regards to how they want to invest their money, whereas an investor 10, 20, 30 years ago might have primarily looked at returns. Investors are much more aware in that they don't want to just be able to generate returns from investment opportunities, but they also want to make sure that there is some way to measure the impact of their investments. So I think that if we're looking primarily at ethical investors, and obviously that would include Sharia compliant investors, making sure that we're all able to offer them platforms that are impactful, that are obviously in line with the Sharia, I mean, that's for sure, but also making sure that we're in line with the Makassid Sharia as well, because that's really important as well. So we have to be able to offer a wholesome and well-rounded service that takes into account impact as well, so that these investors could make an impact with what they're trying to do and feel better about themselves and feel that they're improving the community, the society, and the environment whenever possible as well.
And Hassan, let's now turn to a bit about you and your background. So yeah. you grew up in the Middle East, right? I want to get hazard a guess at Lebanon, I think. Yeah, that's right. What was that like? Do you want to talk us through a little bit about your kind of early experiences growing up and then maybe university as well? Yeah. So as you correctly said, I grew up in Lebanon. When I first moved there, I'm saying I moved there because we had a civil war for a very long time. So a lot of us were expatriates for a while. And when the situation settled down, we went back to Lebanon. It was very peaceful and nice for a while. And then the war started to break out with our neighbors. That obviously had an effect on us growing up. I mean, you've got 16 sects in Lebanon, basically, between Muslims and Christians, primarily. Tolerance is embedded in the fabric of Lebanese society. But over the last couple of years, we've had a lot of obstacles in our way as a country. Obviously, the wars with Israel are very well chronicled. But on top of that, recently, you've got as well an economic crisis. And then, obviously, over the last couple of days, we also saw... uh, the massive damage that was caused by that nitrate explosion. So it's just a lot of stuff that come into play and obviously have an effect on you growing up in different ways and forms. But yeah, otherwise, I mean, it's a really nice country. I don't know if you've ever been, Abraham, but it's known as the Paris of the Middle East. Very tolerant. I haven't actually been, but I'd love to go. I've heard it's a beautiful place. Yeah, so it's a beautiful place. I mean, you've got a couple of months in the year where you could go up to the mountain, snow-capped mountains, and even go down to the beach that's in and around early spring. So it's a beautiful country. But yeah, I mean, we haven't been very fortunate in terms of, I would say, primarily our neighbors. So that's had an impact on all of us growing up. It's really unfortunate because in terms of the Lebanese society, we've got all the components, very high literacy rates, highly educated people. We've got over 20 million expatriates outside the country. They all own houses in Lebanon and invest in Lebanon. So, yeah, it's been very unfortunate, and I wish only the best for the Lebanese, and I hope we're able to get our act together and start moving forward, inshallah. Then what happened is I studied up north here in Manchester. I finished my education. I went to Dubai and worked with Deloitte primarily in the mergers and acquisitions space. That's where I came across Islamic finance. So when we were working out of Dubai, the global mergers and acquisitions headquarters of Deloitte were in Dubai. At the time, the barrel of oil was really high. It was at around $110, $120 a barrel. There was a lot of money to spend. So we used to work for the likes of Adia, the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund, and other major private equity firms all across the Middle East. And we even went all the way to Korea and elsewhere to close M&A transactions for them. So it was very good. And that's where I came across Islamic finance initially. So I did my CFAs when I was working at Deloitte, and that was very tiresome. I mean, we used to spend the weekends in the office studying primarily. Once I finished my CFAs, I decided to take a bit of time off and go to INSEF in Malaysia to study about Islamic finance. So I completed over there a PhD in Islamic finance. That's Uh, amazing. So were you there in Malaysia for the full three, four years? Yeah. So I'm one of the few people who managed to do it in less than three years. Handel, I was able to complete it really fast. And yeah, that's when the idea for Cardus came up. Obviously, the good thing about the PhD in Islamic finance in in INSEF primarily is that they teach you mostly about all the schools of thought. So you have an in-depth understanding of, obviously, the Shafi'i school of thought, but also the Hanbali and the Hanafi school of thought, the differences between them. When you look at a PhD in Islamic finance, obviously, there's a lot of research involved, Ibrahim, but I would say the legal aspects of it are what differentiate it primarily. So there's a lot of studying on the legal side. Brilliant. Alhamdulillah. 
That's another country I've never been to, Malaysia. I'd love to go one day. I've oh, heard yeah. it's a brilliant place as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very beautiful. It's a long flight, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> From Dubai, it's around like 10 or 12 hours, something like that. So it's a really long flight. So if anyone can afford that business travel, I would recommend that. Otherwise, it's going to be a very long ride. Yeah, I can imagine. So Hassan, you came back as Dr. Hassan Dahir, and then you went straight into entrepreneur first, or was there kind of a stepping stone between the two things? Yeah, so when I came back over here, I was directly into entrepreneur first. I came back to the UK in August 2018. A couple of months after that, the program at Entrepreneur First started. So Entrepreneur First, if anyone doesn't know, is deep tech incubation program. It's one of the most competitive in Europe. I came in with this idea primarily. So I had taken a coding course in Le Wagon. I don't know if you're familiar with Le Wagon. It's like a boot camp for coding. So I had taken a course over there. So I know a bit around coding. I took the idea up to Entrepreneur First. They bought into it for their incubation program. And we started chipping away at it and trying to de-risk it as much as possible in their program. Then I managed to get funding for Cardis in October 2019. And that was primarily from SFC Investors and Founders Factory. From then on, I spent six months in the Founders Factory Accelerator program. Again, just building the roadmap, waiting for the FCA regulations to come through. The FCA permissions took a long time to come through, primarily because of Brexit. And then after Brexit, you had the COVID-19 pandemic. Hence, we were only able to launch recently in July. But looking back, that's been a blessing, frankly, because primarily what we do is we risk core SMEs. We price them. Obviously, we source them. We risk core SMEs and we price them. Could you imagine us having a couple of cyclical SMEs on our platform before the pandemic? That wouldn't have ended up well. So... The pandemic definitely helped us rethink our strategy and focus on recession-proof SMEs. Amazing. And do you want to kind of share with us about your thoughts and experiences around Entrepreneur First and Accelerator programs? Because yeah. I'm sure that some of our listeners might be thinking about setting up their own thing, and they might even be thinking about going for something like Entrepreneur First or other accelerators. And yeah. I'm sure they would benefit from your kind of insight into that. Definitely, Ibrahim. So I would say if I were to compare Entrepreneur First and Founders Factory, it's two different philosophies and two different models, at least from my perspective. If we start with Entrepreneur First, Entrepreneur First is primarily deep tech, I would say. So if you look at most of the businesses in Entrepreneur First, they're data-driven, lots of companies on the biology side, so biosciences, then you've got a couple of fintechs that come through. So it's a mix of businesses, frankly. And the system is built in such a way where you essentially join Entrepreneur First to find the co-founder. That's essentially how it works. And then you end up in a highly pressurized environment to not only de-risk your idea as much as possible, but also find the right co-founder. So that's how the system works. And that's how the system is built, basically. You're probably going to explain this, but do you know uh, that? That's a good system? Frankly, I wouldn't say so. And I'll tell you why, Ibrahim. My two cents on this is that when I joined the program, I was primarily looking for a CTO, basically, with a finance background. So someone who's probably worked at a bank or another fintech platform before or anything like that. I was expecting to be matched with someone with these skill sets on the program. And then I realized that that wasn't the case. So you didn't have enough candidates that fit the profile I was looking for in terms of a CTO. To answer your question directly, I would say if 
you're looking to do something in biology, if you're looking to disrupt an area that's got to do with, let's say, examining large data sets in the biology sector, then you should probably go in because you've got such a large option of highly qualified PhDs from Oxford and Cambridge who have done a lot of research in this area and are really keen to disrupt that space. But if you're looking to do what I am doing or what you are doing, I would say that finding a co-founder that matches the criteria we might be looking for, you're not likely to find that in the pool of candidates and entrepreneur first. The positive thing about entrepreneur first is that they put so much pressure on you to de-risk ideas as much as possible. So in that end, it was really good, basically. So you shouldn't be afraid of de-risking the idea as much as possible. By de-risking, I mean going out there, speaking to people, seeing whether this is really a pressure point. So the problem you are trying to solve is really a pressure point. So that's really important. And that kind of pressure is good in that sense, especially if you thrive under pressure. I think maybe I've given you a couple of qualities that a startup founder should really see and see whether he's got these qualities and whether they would be matched by a place like Entrepreneur First. Shall I move on to Founders Factory? Yeah, that would be really interesting and really helpful. That was helpful for me to understand from a startup founder's perspective going into Entrepreneur First, what it was like. I've heard some people complain, I guess, some investors have complained that they all sound great and all the startups coming out of EF are coached really well. But I think up till now they've had maybe one kind of nine-figure exit, which was, I think, something with the word pony in, magic pony or something. Magic pony. But that's kind of it. So, yeah, I guess we just wait and see because they do attract a lot of quality founders, a lot of quality individuals. Yeah. Again, Brahim, frankly, it goes to show how predictable startups are to begin with in that they keep on drilling it into you, the next unicorn. Are you the next unicorn? Are you that? And frankly, I mean, the idea of being able to predict who's going to be the next unicorn or mentor that to begin with is just really difficult. I'm not sure whether that's the right strategy going forwards for these types of programs. It's probably got to be another look at how they go about picking their candidates and how they go about mentoring their candidates as well. Because like you said, at the end of the day, the numbers speak for themselves. Yeah, that could change going forward. It's a long-term game, isn't it? Agreed. Who knows? If they come up with the next Google, then they don't necessarily have to do anything again for the rest of their lives. It'll be fine. (laughs) Exactly. Now, the question is whether they're aware that they have the next Google or is it just pure luck? That's something that would be very interesting. I mean, it's something that we won't be able to quantify, frankly, because they would probably say, yeah, we always knew that the next Google was in our midst and and we actually mentored this guy and did this and this, that. But yeah, Yeah. ultimately, it's all on the founder's shoulders. It's simple as that. And whichever program you decide to get into, in terms of a startup founder, you must realize that you're not going to get much help. You might get mentorship. So that's really important as well. Like, if the founders think that they might come in there and expect heavy lifting from any type of organization, I think they would be misfounded. It's more like providing you with some kind of blueprint in how to go about doing things, but ultimately the heavy lifting is entirely on the founders. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. And I think that VC, venture capital and all of this stuff, ultimately when you boil it down, it's PR game because the best deals are where all the returns lie and the best deals will be only really accessible to the best VCs because that's where the best founders will go because of the PR 
that these VCs have done or past success. In order to kind of get into that deal flow, you either need to be friends with them or have had historic successes, or you need to have great PR. The best VCs are probably just great at doing the whole media piece. And so from a founder's perspective, they need to kind of keep that in mind. I think it's like politicians as well, because politics is like a PR game as well. It's not ultimately the best person to run the country doesn't win necessarily. It's the best person who does the best PR to say that they are the best person to run the country who wins. There are two slightly subtly different things. Definitely. I agree with you fully, especially now in the midst of all that data going on. So Hassan, I'd love to hear a bit more about Gordos and what you're trying to achieve with Gordos. What exactly does it do? What makes it special? Yeah, just talk to us about that. Yeah. So if I begin by describing Gordos, we're essentially an investment-based crowdfunding platform. And on one side of the marketplace, you've got small businesses looking for Sharia-compliant business financing. On the other side of the marketplace, you've got social impact investors who are looking not just to generate returns, but also have a social impact. We're looking at relatively small ticket sizes initially of around £100,000. Going forwards, we'll start looking at larger ticket sizes, but for now we're focusing on £100,000. If I explain how we got about to thinking of Cardis, I would say we spoke to a lot of people and found that there are no Sharia-compliant, or let's say, no Sharia-compliant business financing options that target that specific ticket size. So whereas you've got the Islamic banks, obviously, the Islamic banks look at much larger ticket sizes, whether it's by choice or because of their capital guidelines, because they are essentially banks and they obviously operate differently to fintech platform might be the cause of this. But basically, everyone's overlooking the users that we're targeting that are basically looking for Sharia-compliant business financing but it's not readily available right now in the UK. So that's one thing. Now, we zoned in even further, and we realized that the overwhelming majority of SMEs in the UK need working capital financing. By working capital financing, it's usually short-term in nature. It's used basically to cover a funding gap on the books of the SME, and it's much in demand because of obvious reasons. Small businesses might suffer from a working capital funding requirement, sometimes due to a seasonal issue. So for example, let's say a company sells a lot of products primarily around Eid or around Ramadan or et cetera. So they might have a very seasonal business. And in times when no one's buying their products, they might have a funding gap that needs to be filled. So that's just an example. But that's essentially what we try to do. So we try to focus on working capital financing initially, but going forwards, we definitely plan to focus on other types of financing, whether it's asset financing. We might look at property financing, but we know there are lots of people in the space or lots of people coming soon into this space, but we're primarily looking at business financing. Makes sense. And what do you think is the long-term kind of impact of doing this space well for the UK community at large, but also the Muslim community as well? What's your vision with what you're doing? Our vision with what we're doing now, Brahim, is very simple. We're promoting financial inclusion with our platform, which means that a business that cannot currently obtain readily available financing in a Sharia-compliant manner, because that's what they require, if they're unable to tap into that type of financing, they're unable to grow their businesses 
or unable to take their businesses up to their potential. So we feel that by providing this readily available Sharia compliant working capital financing facility to small businesses, they would in turn be able to prosper, grow their businesses on the back of the leverage that they're obtaining. That will in turn improve the community at large because these directors would be more affluent, have more money, and they'd be able to spend more in the economy. And what you end up having is a cycle. It's a loop that starts feeding itself. So we feel that the service we're providing at the moment is targeting financial inclusion, targeting bringing SMEs that were growing their businesses in an expensive manner by using equity, by diluting themselves, by doing all that kind of stuff to start obtaining this readily available financing at an affordable rate, given the type of structure that we're offering and the credit risk of the businesses that are obtaining the financing and in turn generate this type of positive feedback loop in terms of just improving the economy at large. So that's basically it. Obviously, when you look at a small business, on one end of things, you've got the screening criteria that translates into what we do on the investment side in terms of offering an ethical and social impact investment platform. But we're also looking at an additional layer as well. So we're looking, for example, if a company comes to us and a company is not doing very well, we don't want to offer it financing because that would be detrimental. So we make sure that distressed companies don't come our way. And this is unlike a lot of conventional players in this space. If you take a list of all the working capital financing providers in the UK in the conventional space, whether it's iWalker or anything else, they might offer financing of 24% all the way to 75%. Now, you tell me which SME is accepting rates that high in the UK. If these rates were in Asia and some parts of Asia, that might be the case because inflation is so high. But in the UK, it's just too much. That's another thing we're looking at. So we're making sure that we are very conscious and responsible financiers. We would never bring a company to our platform that cannot service the financing we're offering responsibly. If we ever do that, anyone on this podcast should flag us up because that should never be the case, inshallah. Brilliant. Inshallah, I wish you all the best with it. I think that you're going to do a stellar job. Before we wrap up, I thought it'd be great to just get some of your insights and lessons that you've learned that you'd like to share with other entrepreneurs starting off on their journey over the last year or so of a rather grueling process, particularly the ideation and kind of go-to-market stages and maybe even the fundraising stages. I don't know what your advices would be on those areas. Yeah. If you look at the current climate and landscape, I would say that the climate is not entirely favorable for founders who are just coming into the game because the pandemic has had an impact, obviously, on the funding side. Having said that, a good business is a good business. And someone being able to start a business in this kind of environment is definitely a great proof point for what they're trying to do. So having said that, I would say one is not to be afraid and not to postpone really validating your idea. So there are two ways of going about doing this. One is hitting the ground running from the very beginning, trying to validate as much as possible and not being afraid to say that the idea you've got is just not worth it because it doesn't solve a much needed problem. So that's really important. To summarize what I've just said, I would say that founders have got to be very brave, question what they're doing and tackle that aggressively just so they don't end up wasting time that they could have spent better elsewhere. Second of all, you never know that 
one thing could lead to another, basically, in that you start off with one idea and then you're able to pivot and work on something else just because you spoke to the right people, you managed to figure out a true problem, a true friction that you could target and try to solve and make it more frictionless as a service, basically. So I think that's a really important point. Otherwise, I would say exposure is really important, Brahim. I really stress that being in a place where you're exposed to lots of different mindsets, just from experience, the energy you get in a place like Founders Factory is contagious. Everyone is hustling and working really hard to get somewhere and achieve something. Being around these types of environments is really important. It would be really hard to find the patience and the endurance and the stamina to do this on your own. Some people can, but definitely these same people might find it easier if they're in a climate or environment where everyone else is also doing the same thing as well and trying to find solutions to major problems. In my experience, it would be these two things. Otherwise, I would say speak to as many people as possible. People have got different thoughts. Knock on as many doors as possible. People are always ready to listen and give their advice. And I would say try to hack as much as possible in that really look at the problem at hand and see how to tackle it in the most effective manner. Makes sense. And what are your thoughts around like go-to-market strategies? Right. So go-to-market strategies, there's going to be a lot of iteration, frankly. We've launched on July 3rd, for example. And just by looking at the current investor base that we had, we've seen a lot of, let's say, maybe a lot of profiles that we didn't think might be interested to invest in Shura compliant investments. So Basically, what I'm trying to say is that when you're going to market, start off, obviously, with your best guess of how to tackle this. So have some blueprints ready, but go out and test them as soon as possible, because it's highly unlikely that you'll get it right from the first time. So try to be as iterative as possible. And if something doesn't work, make sure you've got your eye on the data. Don't spend too much time. A really important point is don't be too stubborn. So let the data decide which is the best way of tackling the problem at hand. So that's really important. So keep an open mind and just keep on iterating, keep on evolving, keep on thinking outside the box and keep on testing. Really good thoughts. Maybe we should have a separate panel with you and perhaps some other startup founders in the community to like brainstorm a few more ideas around specific topics. That'd be quite interesting, I think. Hassan, it has been a pleasure and I'm excited to see where the future takes you and Gordos, and I hope it's going to be a pillar of both the Muslim community, but also the wider UK community, and inshallah can do a lot of good in the coming years. Many thanks once again for coming on. Thanks, Ibrahim. It's really an honor again. Definitely. I mean, what you just pointed out is that we're looking to offer a Shura compliant platform, but we're also primarily an ethical platform. So we don't want anyone to feel intimidated to come on this platform to invest, to obtain financing. We're an inclusive platform and that's essentially what will always be, inshallah. So thanks again. And again, I'm up for any panel you guys might have. I'm ready to share my ideas with the startup community anytime, inshallah. Brilliant. Assalamu alaikum, Azim. Wa alaikum salam. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum.